Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Special Operations Covert Ops Espionage The Team House With your hosts Jack Murphy And David Park Hey guys, this is The Team House Coming at you live, episode 90 I'm Jack Murphy, here with Dave Park our guest tonight is Lindsay Moran. She is a former CIA case officer. She is the author of Blowing My Cover, which I read, well, what, about a week ago? Super cool book. Really enjoyed it. Um, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, me too. Part of the bromance. <laughs> yeah, we, we, are, uh, we are a bro show. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's not a bro quota, uh, I'll say that, but occasionally we let women invade our secret tree fort, you know, that we make with the couch cushions and everything and the Nerf guns. And well, yeah, yeah, we're okay. We're we take okay. down our no girls allowed signs yeah. for mm-hmm. the, uh, mm-hmm. the evening. <laughs> Lots of like cooties getting spread around and whatnot, but you know, we're okay. I- I'm growing up a little bit. I'm okay with it. Okay. Uh, no, uh, so Lindsay, the first question we always ask our guests is about their superhero origin story. Uh, if you were a superhero, how did you get your start? Did uh, Were you put in like a vat of some sort of liquid while they fused adamantine to your uh, skeleton? Were you bit by a radioactive spider, uh, locked inside a <laughs> nuclear reactor and hit with gamma rays? I don't know. What, what happened? Oh, man. That is like a curveball question right off the bat. <laughs> And I will say foremost, superheroes are not my jam, like not into them. Don't believe in it's just not my thing. Um, Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Uh, It's been great. I'm just. (laughs) But okay, let me let me think about that. 
If I, I think that I, my superhero origin story, story, and and forgive me because I know no real superhero origin stories, but I think that I was like it was kind of like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, and I was the kid who wanted to. Um, wasn't there a kid who dove into that chocolate river? Oh, sure. I think that's what I did, but it was like a river of cynicism and wit. Nice. <laughs> I just floated down that for a while and came out and was like, hmm, I think I'll take these skills and join the CIA. So, so would, would your superhero name be like Sardonica or something along, along those lines? Yes, I love that. That is my superhero name. I was keeping that to myself, but... That's well, you're you're also like the quintessential Gen Xer, I think, probably running around with like tore up jeans as a teenager, and that's where the cynicism and wit comes from. I'm still in tor torn up jeans. I'm not going to stand up to show you all, but I am in jorts. Um, yeah, no, I am a total Gen Xer, a closet slacker. Not even so much a closet slacker, but yeah, I'm proud of my Gen X roots. So what, what about your Gen X roots? Like, how did you grow up and, and was it something in your environment, your family, things you read or saw on TV? Like what led you to the CIA? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. It was absolutely 100% my environment. Um, I grew up at, in the DC area and um, I was obsessed with this character, Harriet the Spy. Those were my favorite books. And I liked this little girl who like skulked around and spied on people. And I kind of fashioned my life after her, um, <clears throat> spying on, you know, the neighbors and my family and, and nobody was ever doing anything interesting. Um, but uh, also my father worked for the Defense Department and he designed ships for the Navy. And so he was doing top secret work. And I, at that time, didn't really understand the nature of his work, but I kind of assumed that he was a spy because, you know, I would call his office and someone would answer and say, this is a non-secure line. Um, and I knew that when we, when he traveled overseas and sometimes I would go on business trips with him, we couldn't go to Eastern Bloc countries. And he was always really paranoid, uh, you know, looking at his suitcase, packing his suitcase in a particular way to make sure that nobody had tampered with it. So I kind of thought he was a spy. I also, my grandfather um, had a, a past that seemed like maybe he could have been a spy. That is, he was supposedly an engineer for the U.S. Army. But as I delved into it, I noticed that wherever he went, there was like a coup six months later. So I kind of got it in my mind that that joining the CIA and becoming a spy was like a rite of passage to me, that this was like my birthright. Um, I, I, I graduated, I guess, from Harriet the Spy to James Bond and was really obsessed with those and would go to James Bond triple features. Now I can't stand that hackneyed crapola and cannot wait until Bond drops dead of syphilis. But in any event, um, ultimately... I learned that that my father was was not a spy. I still don't know about my grandfather. Even after I joined the CIA, I still have my suspicions that he might have been in the OSS. But to me, it was a, an obsession from a very young age. I was going to be one of two things, a pirate like Pippi Longstocking or a spy like Harriet the Spy. But I, I thought it was interesting that you didn't take the the uh, traditional 1950s uh, career into the CIA. Well, you kind of did go into uh, Ivy League schools. 
but you were also like some sort of pinko liberal commie. And I, I've heard I heard a rumor in your book that you might have <laughs> smoked the reefer. <laughs> well, um, yes, and it's interesting that you bring that up, Jack. Um, but yeah, when I there were I didn't approach. I mean, the CIA didn't approach me. I, I approached the CIA, and there were only three people that I told that I was going to approach the CIA: my father, my mother, and my brother, all of whom were opposed to that decision. <laughs> my father, most of all, was like, "The, the CIA is never going to take you," and and he was like, "You know, if, if they want you, they will come tap you on the shoulder, and you should be." Um, president of the Young Republicans Club, and I was ignoring all that. And then finally, he said, "And also, you've smoked pot." Um, and that used to be, I, I think, at the CIA, you know, that used to be a disqualifying factor. But come on, like the main, the main skill you have to have as a case officer is to be able to um, assimilate and relate to people. And in 1997, when I applied to the CIA, if you were someone who had never smoked pot, you're going to have a hard time going out and relating to other people in the in the world, frankly. So, yeah, it was it was almost uh, my dad saying, you know, they're never going to take you that I thought, hmm, I'm going to prove him wrong. And they they did. They took me. <laughs> yeah, it was funny how he, he at least the way you write in the book, he was like the quintessential boomer <laughs> voting yeah. for Ronald Reagan, like, oh, they'll never take you. <laughs> yeah, my dad is a hardcore libertarian. Um, and, and that was the ethos that, that I grew up in. So I have become increasingly um, pinko commie liberal as, I, as I've grown older. So, so at the time that you applied to the CIA, I mean, were you, I mean, did you sort of have more like liberal, I don't want to say liberal, but more like socialist leanings? Or were you more following your dad's footsteps of libertarian? Yeah, no, I would, I would say at that point in my life, um, when I was, uh, you know, in my early 20s, um, that I did have a, a probably a much stronger libertarian um, streak. But you know, I've always considered libertarianism that point in the circle where the left meets the right. Um, and I, I believe that to this day. But uh, a few things drew me to the CIA. Um, one was um, just that it had been my childhood dream, and I thought that's going to be that would be like a really cool job. Um, the other was actually a very strong sense of patriotism, and I think that's something that's uh, that you see a lot at the people who are drawn to the CIA, both then, now, throughout history, have that strong sense of patriotism, and I did have that Gen X. I grew up with that, you know, we are the good guys. Um, I was always very interested in and um, intrigued with, almost obsessed with Eastern Europe and the Soviet bloc. And I, I traveled to the Soviet Union when I was 17 on one of the first U.S.-Soviet student exchange programs. And I remember this being kind of a big deal for my father, who, um, you know, was working for the government at that point and designing subs and Navy ships and uh, was was certainly uh, not allowed to go to Soviet bloc countries or the Soviet Union. So the fact that his 17 year old daughter was going to was going to go over there was a big deal. And he had to get clearance um, through the government for that to happen. 
or at least he told me he did that. I'm, I'm not quite sure that he actually got that clearance. But my father warned me before I went to the Soviet Union that, you know, I for sure would be followed, that there would be um, KGB handlers all, uh, all along the way. But back to your original question about uh, my politics then, it was really a very strong sense of patriotism that drew me to the CIA and a desire to serve my country in a way that I thought was suited to me. My brother is a naval aviator and spent his career in the Navy. And yes, it would have pleased my father to no end if I had done an ROTC scholarship and joined the military, but that wasn't the right fit for me. Um, so the CIA seemed to me like a kind of place where I could serve my country, but I could also be my crazy, quirky self. And you do have a lot of crazy, quirky people at the agency. And there, you still took this uh, sort of uh, meandering route there. I mean, there's you were living overseas in Bulgaria, rock climbing. Um, you, you were accepted to different graduate programs. I think it was it a Fulbright scholarship that you got and you, you delayed your service into the CIA after you had applied to go and do graduate school. I mean, what was it that finally you turned away from academia in this bohemian lifestyle and took the plunge and, and went through the process? Yeah. Um, the, a good question. So at the time that I was, I mean, I guess I was about 25, 26 years old and I was sort of trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I had spent a year living in Bulgaria as a teacher <clears throat> where everybody thought that I was, <laughs> that, that all the American teachers were spies, but I came back and, um, and it was at that point that I decided to really pursue in earnest the agency and, um, sent my resume and I mean like old school, you know, folded it up, put in an envelope, CIA, Langley, Virginia, and, and sent it away. At the same time, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship to go back to Eastern Europe, to Bulgaria. And at the same time, I applied to Berkeley Law School. And they all kind of came in at the same time. Um, I was uh, hired by the CIA, I got the Fulbright, and I was accepted into Berkeley. And I deferred... Um, Berkeley for a year, and I deferred the CIA for a year. At first, I told the CIA, I was like, look, you know, I'm so excited to come, but I've got this Fulbright to Bulgaria, so I'm going to go do that. And they were, the CIA was like, no, we don't think so. You know, we're starting to question your commitment. And, um, and I spoke to my brother, who's the most uh, reasonable and rational and uh, thoughtful person I know. And he was like, look, Lindsay, you don't want to be part of an organization that's not going to let you do a Fulbright scholarship. Right. So I called the agency's bluff and I said, you know, I'm going to go do the, the Fulbright. And they were like, OK, uh, get in touch with it. Do not get in touch with us while you're overseas. Get in touch with us uh, in a year. Um, I also deferred Berkeley another year and living overseas for another year, again, in Bulgaria, love the Balkans, love Eastern Europe, that kind of misery just really appeals to me. Um, and, uh, and it was there that I realized, you know, I just, I really, I like being overseas. I like interacting with foreigners. I like being a global person. And so it was, I did not get in touch with the agency. I came back they had to redo my background investigation, but then ultimately I was accepted into the clandestine service. And, you know, it was one of those things, everybody, well, everybody, there were three people who knew my brother, my father and my mother, and they kept telling me it wasn't the right fit for me, but I'm kind of one of those people who I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 
and you know, I mean, piracy hadn't really become the rage in Somalia yet, so it was it was the CIA I at that point. Oh, I know. <laughs> I sent my resume there too, and that was the one place that they were like, "No, I don't know. You're, right. <laughs> you're not really Afghanistan. what we're looking for." Yeah. yeah. Um, when you interviewed for the CIA, and you know, you said that like smoking pot and things like that used to be disqualifiers. Were you forthright? Did you tell them, like, or forthcoming? Did you, like, tell them stuff, you know, the, the things that you thought might? Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Work against you? Um, yes, I was. I mean, I was fairly forthright. Like I didn't list every occasion on which I'd smoked mar marijuana probably sure. because I did not have those dates in my calendar. Um, so I was fairly forthright. I said that I had, you know, smoked pot like five or six times in college. Maybe I underestimated it by sure. a little bit. Interestingly, I didn't, I never had any problems with the drug question on my polygraphs. Um, the question that I got hung up on was, have you ever willfully destroyed government property? Right. And uh, I had a polygrapher, you know, he said, you're, you keep, I know you're lying. You're lying about this question. You keep getting caught up on this question of, did you ever willfully destroy government property? And truly for the life of me. I mean, I had shoplifted, you know, as a kid. Yeah, I'd smoked pot. Um, I had never willfully <laughs> destroyed government property. But the best thing was, at one point, he looked at me very seriously and he said, you know, this could cover a variety of offenses. Uh, for example, taking a sledgehammer to a fax machine, mm -hmm. um, which really dates me and the polygrapher. Because, <laughs> But I mean, I almost burst out laughing because I can't imagine that that's the one thing someone's going to hide is taking a sledgehammer to a fax machine. So back to your original question, because I've given you a long answer. But the short answer is I was fairly forthright. Um, I had done enough research on the polygraph that uh, I knew the, the, the polygraph is not a scientifically accurate tool. Right. The polygraph will certainly measure your physiological reactions to questions in the situation you're in, but it's not going to tell people if you're lying. Um, it is, a, I will say this, it is, a, it is an incredibly effective effective psychological tool, particularly right. on Americans. And I think that the CIA uses it to its advantage uh, when they're hiring people because it is a very powerful psychological tool. Um, I was, I stonewalled the polygraphers. Uh, I, I at, at some level knew that this was part of a, and I, I felt it was part of a, a game or a process. And at, at some level, I felt bad for some of my fellow trainees, people who were hired around the same time as I was, who were squeaky, squeaky clean, who had never done any drugs and who ended up going in for the, their polygraphs again and again and again, because the polygraphers simply wouldn't believe that they'd never smoked pot. Right. I, I think it's interesting also that you say that it's an effective tool for Americans, because one of the things that not a lot of people know is that polygraphs don't really work on people of different cultures, if they don't sort of have a guilt-based culture, if they have more of like a shame-based or, or whatever, 
it doesn't always, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't measure things that they feel like the, the bad things they did, they did for the right reasons or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, that certainly was driven home for me from my my years living in, in Eastern Europe. And, you know, I started out in um, in the Balkans in Bulgaria as a teacher. And all of my students were these incredibly bright uh, Bulgarian students. And I was young, I was 24 at the time. And they told me years later that they couldn't believe um, I gave them a test and I turned around and faced the other direction. I don't know. I was writing something on the blackboard. And they couldn't believe that I turned around and faced the other direction because they all had these ingenious methods of cheating, you know, these scrolls that would come out of pens, and like much better gadgets than we ever had at the CIA. Right. Um, <clears throat> At the school I was teaching, half the faculty was Bulgarian and half was American. And there was kind of a debate about cheating because as Americans, it's, it, you know, we have, I think, this sort this honor code about, uh, about honesty. In some ways, we're naive. And what, what became clear to me is that, at least in the Balkans and certainly, um, you know, in, in communist Bulgaria, that you you have to get by by lying. You have to figure out a way to work the system. And to that's survive, how you survive. Yeah. And that's right. how you get ahead. Um, and so this notion that you're going to feel really guilty about telling an untruth is kind of preposterous. Now, the CIA does use, um, as many people know, the CIA uses the, the polygraph not just on uh, applicants and employees, uh, where I do think the CIA is able to use that effectively and is able to get people to to admit things that they might otherwise not, because again, it's a it's a powerful psychological tool. I do question how effective the polygraph can be in terms of vetting foreign assets and foreign agents, because in a lot of other cultures and in a lot of other situations. Um, there is no guilt associated right. with with that kind of lying and doing what you have to do, whether it be for your country or your family or or yourself. Well, and if you look at somebody like Ames, you know he uh, report, you know, reportedly passed the polygraph every five years, like squeaky clean, no problem. So, yeah, and I and I will say um, it was actually Ames. Ames's arrest, you know, as I said, it had always been my dream to, to join the CIA. When I first graduated from college, I sent my resume to the CIA and they got in touch with me immediately. And I decided not to go through with the process at that time because I was 21 years old and I was like, I, I, I was cognizant that that entering this place was was going to, you know, it's like diving headfirst down into the into a rabbit hole. Um, it wasn't until 1994, I was living in Eastern Europe, I was living in Sofia, Bulgaria. Um, actually, no, it was right, I was preparing to, to move to Sofia, Bulgaria when Ames was arrested. And those headlines, I read those headlines, and that really, in a way, kind of reawakened my sense of patriotism. I was so outraged that this person had worked for the CIA uh, and been in the position he was in and was selling secrets to the Russians, you know, over, over more than a decade. And, and that was when I finally decided, you know what, I'm going to go back. I, I think that's what I want to do. So you go back, uh, start the process. Um, before you are able to go to the farm, you do, I, I guess it was like some on-the-job training. You had a variety of outrageously ridiculous assignments 
at the headquarters in Langley. Uh, before we get into the farm, I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about some of those things that you ended up doing. Well, let me say this from the from the get go. I I never as a younger person I I might not have ever identified myself or said I'm an idealist and I'm a feminist but but I am and um and so I you know I joined the CIA um I've got two Ivy League degrees um you know I've always been an advocate of uh women's rights and social justice and so on and so forth so 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 one of my first tasks at the CIA um after some initial orientation is uh I'm not an intern, but I'm, I'm doing like entry level work in uh, what at that time was called CE division. And there was a, a contingent from Kazakhstan coming over. And so my job was to research titty bars in Washington that we could take these guys to and, um, and we could show them a good time. And, um, and then there were also, my job was to research like activities There were, some of them had their wives coming over with them that we could entertain the wives. It wasn't going to be me taking the dudes out to the titty bars, but I was responsible for finding different ways that the CIA could show these partner organizations a good time in Washington, DC. And that's what the CIA does, you know, <laughs> like we, we, um, as an organization, uh, we provide training, we provide perks in order to get allies and potential allies to work with us and to share intelligence with us. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of a dirty business. And maybe like I was a little bit naive, but there was a point where I'm like, I cannot believe this is what I'm <laughs> doing. Did you get reports back on the research that you had done? Was everybody happy about it? <laughs> I never, I never asked. I moved on. I moved on to a different, what's called an interim, you know, where we spent, we as the young trainees would spend three month periods in, in, um, in different parts of headquarters. Um, and I moved on, I think, to the, <laughs> to my counterintelligence uh, interim. And, you know, I mean, I saw people like lifelong bureaucrats sleeping underneath their desks. <laughs> So very early on, I got a sense uh, of this is not the omnipotent organization that I thought it was. Yeah. You know, this is not the, the best of the best. You talk about the, the two old ladies that are basically having like a conversation and farts across the office, you know, back and forth. It's like, wow. You know, I, I, I feel bad about writing that kind of stuff in my book because I'm always you know, thinking that's a, I, I think I've become more humanistic in my, in my old age. Um, but yeah, it was, there was so much of uh, the agency, you know, from the outside looking in, I think I had revered this organization. Um, and, and many people, people either love it or hate it, but from the outside looking in, I was like, this place is so cool. And then, you know, when I got on the inside and I realized, you know, it's a, it's a lot of people in sensible shoes. <laughs> it's not what you see in, in Hollywood. Well, it, it doesn't it kind of go back to that old saying, like, never meet your heroes? Yes. I might have been better off to, to never meet my heroes. <laughs> no. And then uh, you get to the farm. And 
uh, went through. Th- this was back in the day when they they made it everyone do like paramilitary training. Also, um, well, can you talk a little bit about that and, and also getting into the uh, tradecraft training? Because it was interesting that the PRB let you write like quite a bit about what it's like to go through that whole process and be trained as a CIA officer. Yeah. Um, yeah, the training was the best part. I mean, that was a blast, um, especially the paramilitary training, which, of course, had no bearing on what our actual careers would be. You know, we all became airborne qualified and jumped out of planes, you know, as if we were going to show up at our first post like a flying Elvis or something. Um, but, I, you know, I didn't I kind of knew it wouldn't have any bearing on our future careers, but it was great. I could not believe that I was being paid to sort of participate in this uh, extreme sport adventure that that most people would pay for. And we did, you know, we we garnered some amazing, um, very tangible skills in land navigation and maritime operations, defensive driving. Um, I got the most improved award in what's called affectionately the crash and burn course of the CIA where we're racing cars around racetracks. I loved all that. I loved the paramilitary training. I loved all that. I loved our instructors, some old, you know, um, Vietnam vets and old CIA and military hands. And they were just great great people. Um, That aspect to me, you know, if if my whole career had been that, that would have been fantastic. Uh, But of course, that's not the the reality. Um, And in addition to to the paramilitary training, there was a couple months of paramilitary training. And then there's tradecraft training. And tradecraft training was kind of a blast too, although it was very high pressure. And um, I kind of recognized early on that the the CIA paradigm or or what they're doing, which I think is smart and effective, is they're putting their trainees in a very in, in a pressure cooker to see how they're going to react when they load more and more work on you. Um, the aspects of tradecraft training, probably the most important aspect was surveillance detection. And, you know, I, like everybody else, had watched movies and thought, okay, when you're being followed, your job is to lose your tail and start racing around the back streets. And you obviously learned that your your job is to bore your surveillance to death so that you don't blow your cover. But there's extensive training in surveillance detection, um, which, you know, as a as a woman, as a person, like the, both situational awareness and surveillance detection and garnering skills in, in that arena is something that would serve me and still serves me well uh, for the rest of my life. The agency has a very, um, a very good training program, I think, for case officers, something that would, is, a, is a criticism I had of the agency and that I, I don't think I'm alone in this is the, the agency's training paradigm is really geared toward Cold War operations. And the agency was very slow, I think, to adapt to the new reality of the war on terrorism and the and the reality that a traditional case officer, and especially a female case officer like me, um, is going to have, uh, is going to be able to be effective in some arenas, uh, but is not going to be effective in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and I think that uh, we've seen 
Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today at least on the inside and, and, and on the outside to a certain extent. We've seen the agency and the intelligence community playing catch up, catch up in a couple of arenas, the war on terrorism and also cybercrime, because at a certain point, you know, training people to go around to a diplomatic cocktail, around the diplomatic cocktail circuit and try to recruit foreign sources. Oops, there goes my water, um, is not effective, you know, is not going to be effective for the intelligence that we need in, right. in the theater of war, in the theater of conflict. So saying that, like, when you went through or, or the training was molded towards the old paradigm of the Cold War and, and they were slow to, uh, uh, you know, adapt to the new paradigm, how do, you, how do you think that would have been reflected in the training? How, what would have been different? It's, it's, it's tough to say because uh, I think you're, um, you, you have to recruit a, a different kind of person or you have to really um, target. You, you almost have to like create different kinds of case officers. That is, I, as a woman, could be and was a very effective case officer in the Balkans and can be a very effective case officer in some of the former Soviet republics. Um, but whereas I'm not going to be in the Middle East, in places in the Middle East. The other thing is, um, I think the agency and the military had to, to come together in a way that is, you know, and I, I to put it bluntly, the agency, at least for the, the past more than a decade, has needed some kind of hybrid between a door kicker and a case officer. And I think they've been trying to create that, but it's not the kind of thing that, that you can create overnight. Um, it's a little bit more aligned probably with what, uh, you know, like a typical Mossad combatant can be, you know, someone who has that military and paramilitary experience, but also can operate uh, on any kind of social circuit and can assimilate into any kind of culture. And quite frankly, that's a very specific and very rare kind of individual, mm -hmm. you know, um, that's I'm not the kind of person who can conduct that, that, that's, that's pretty much JSOC took that away from the agency. And there's a, there's a lot of debate to this day. I mean, should, should JSOC have all of those capabilities and have the paramilitary capability or should it reside in the CIA? There's a lot of nostalgia for the old Office of Strategic Services. Should it be both melded into one? Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know. It's not for me to say what the right answer is, I suppose. You know, I think there's... I, I think there's room for both. Um, I think you can have both. And I, and I think you, um, 
you know, the qualities that go into making a good case officer are so, I don't want to say specific, but it's it's almost like a, a perfect storm or like a number of different ingredients that you wouldn't think. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be the smartest person. Um, you don't have to be uh, the, the brawniest person. You have to have this kind of secret sauce of of social skills, of, of ethics, of, um, of ability to relate to other people. And, you know, I've spoken a lot about uh, the role of women in intelligence and, and female case officers, um, because it is a very male-dominated environment. And yet, I, I, the best case officers I knew, the best recruiters I knew at the CIA were women. And... Uh, I wasn't a mother at the time that I was a case officer. Um, I am now. It was after I became a mother that I looked back on my kind of natural talent as a case officer and realized part of it is kind of like maternal instincts. Uh, When you're handling foreign sources, you are everything to that person. You are their, you know, you're their employer, you're their psychologist, you're their confidant. um, And Uh, You're the person who listens to them. You're the person who strokes their ego. And some of those uh, capabilities and qualities were things that I felt I've been doing this my whole life. You know, as a, as a woman, I've been doing this my whole life. Um, And I felt like that made me a very effective recruiter and certainly other women at the agency who had far longer careers than I did. I know were very effective recruiters. Now, is there a, a place for, for those women in the theater of war? Maybe not. Um, but there certainly is a, a, a place for them in the world of, of human intelligence. Mm-hmm. In your book, you also talk about how this was the point where you start to realize the truth, the reality of the CIA is not exactly what you had envisioned. Like you thought you were going to be the spy, that you were going to be wearing the black cat suit you know, rappelling through a skylight somewhere and cracking open the safe. That very, very rarely do CIA officers get to do something like that. But actually, you're more like a case officer. You're more like the term implies, like a social worker, like you manage a case you know, or a series of cases, those being assets. Uh, what was that like for you as that kind of dawned on you and you began to even have some um, moral qualms with what you were being asked to do? Yeah. Well, let me say this from the Um, get-go. The CIA is a hard place and the world of intelligence is a hard place to be if you can't operate in the gray, you Mm -hmm. know, if you think in black and white. And and that's certainly true in terms of of morality. I won't say ethics, but in in terms of morality, because at the end of the day, as a case officer, you're using people, Mm -hmm. you're manipulating people. You are going into a foreign country and you're trying to spot the people that you think have access to information that the U.S. government might want. And then you're playing them, you know, like figuring out what are their vulnerabilities and what can I do to make this person share secrets with me? So it's very manipulative. Um, It's very cold. And... um, at the same time, it's it's something you can't do if you if you don't have human empathy. But I think if you do it for a while, you start to wonder, like, is this what I want to do with my life? And for me, what was most important was 
keeping sight of the higher good. That is, I'm serving my country, I'm doing something good. So it's okay that I'm lying to everyone that I know. Um, it's okay that I'm manipulating people and using them and, and playing upon their vulnerabilities because I'm serving my country. And um, at a certain point, I realized, you know, I don't know that I'm really serving my country that well, not just me personally, but this organization. There's a lot of careerism at the CIA because there's careerism in, in any arena, in any bureaucracy. And I think if you lose sight of what the high, at least for me, if you lose sight of what the higher goal is and the higher aim, um, you're not going to be affected at your job and you're not going to be happy there for the rest of your life. Um, and I will say, quite frankly, like, um, I'm, I'm probably have become more of a global citizen as I've, as I've gotten older, you know, that I grew up in an era of good versus evil and, and thought that we were the good guys. And I don't think it was just my time at the agency. I just think it's the reality of, of the world that I realized, you know, we're not special. Um, American hubris is, is just that. And, uh, and as I've grown older, it's become much more important to me to be a, a global citizen. So I think that um, realizing two, two things. One, I don't know that I'm really serving my country. I don't know that this organization is really serving my country. Made me realize that this is probably not a place that I want to spend the rest of my life. At the same time, I do think there is tremendous value in human intelligence. And, you know, I've never thought, okay, we should abolish that. You know, we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be spying. I mean, there is, there have been, I think, 9-11 was a, a big intelligence, a huge intelligence failure, the intelligence failure of our time. Um, we haven't had something analogous since 9-11, since 2001. And I think that is in large part to the parts of the intelligence uh, community and the CIA that do function well. And also, I thought this was very interesting. And, and really, if somebody was telling me, and I'm probably going to get in trouble with somebody somewhere for saying this, especially Maybe. if a woman I knew was interested in joining the CIA, I would want them to read your book. Because you talk about the, the lifestyle challenges that this career field presents. And I think like people are kind of familiar with the sacrifices soldiers make and you're deployed away from your family. You know, if you're a Marine, you're going to throw yourself on a hand grenade to save your buddies, that kind of thing. Um, and I don't mean to make light of, of the intelligence community. There is a sort of sacrifice there that they're making in terms of their family and, and just human relationships, like going out on a date with somebody becomes like, the, or can become this huge ordeal. No, that's very true. Um, and uh, again, when I was at the CIA, I was I was single. I didn't have kids. You know, I was unencumbered. But it's also, yeah, it's a very hard place to have a relationship um, because you're uh, you can't be truthful with anyone. You know, so the basis of any sort of romantic relationship is it's based on lies. Um, Less so when that person is an American citizen. You know, a lot of people think the CIA won't let you tell uh, people that you're involved with that you work for the CIA. That's not entirely true. The CIA actually leaves it up to the discretion and judgment of most of the people in the clandestine service. And in my case, there were three people who knew, my mother and my father and um, 
and my brother. But, um, but yeah, you know, I was 20 something and single and it's really, really, <laughs> as a woman, it's hard to have a relationship under the best of circumstances. Uh, but when you're working a very high stress job, you have to lie about what you're doing. And you also, you got to make yourself sound as boring as possible. You know, that's the best cover is like, you don't want to titillate anyone, so right. to speak. So, you know, you present yourself as someone who's working like a dead-end bureaucratic job. You talk about how it was especially difficult that you initially, at least you had a boyfriend from Bulgaria, and you ended up really, I don't want to say it was all based on, maybe it was all based on your entrance into the CIA, but it just got to a point where that relationship couldn't work and that the agency was, you know, all up in your business because you're with a foreign national, he's staying over at your place, is she compromised, you know, all these kinds of questions. Yeah, no, yeah, I broke up with him because I joined the CIA. And, um, you know, I reported uh, my boyfriend at the time um, as a close and continuing contact to the agency. And they, uh, it was kind of funny. Um, they vetted him, you know, I was pushing this paperwork through the, through the CIA because he was going to come visit me. Um, and I was, you know, a neophyte spy and totally stressed about the, the ramifications that having a foreign boyfriend could have on my career. And the agency wasn't getting back to me and wasn't getting back to me. And then finally, they got back to me and said that they had conducted an investigation of him um, and that he was okay. I was allowed to date him and he could come to my house. Um, he was a rock climber. Uh, but they spelled his name wrong. So it was like a guy who didn't even exist. And, and you know, we used to joke um, among colleagues, men and women, but particularly the women, you know, as we assessed men, we'd be like, you know, you got to decide if he's worth the paperwork. And, and, and I don't know what the, you know, what the protocol is now, but at that time, one night stands were okay. Like if you had a one night stand with a foreigner, you didn't have to report it. So, you know, that, that was sort of the litmus test. If you, if there was a hookup or something like that, then you had to decide, like, if I'm going to see this person again, I'm going to have to file paperwork on them. And, you know, we would openly discuss, yeah, that person's not worth the paperwork. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It's an even bigger decision of whether you're going to shave your legs or not, right? Like, <laughs> Much bigger decision. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's hard. To, but, I mean, back to your original question, it's, it's, it's hard as a single person, and, it's, and it's, um, it's also hard as a married person. You know, the agency has a very high divorce rate. People tend to... People tend to marry, at least in the clandestine service, uh, people tend to marry other case officers. So you've got two people who like lie, cheat, and steal for a living, who have cover for being out at all hours of the night. Um, it's rife with opportunity for um, infidelity and indiscretion. So those marriages usually end. And then the people end up marrying someone else in the agency. And, I, you know, a funny story, one of my... Um, one of the first female mentors I had at the CIA, I just started, I was still in that period where we were just working at headquarters. <laughs> she and I went down to lunch together at the agency cafeteria. And she'd been at the agency for like 20 years. And she said, take a look around because one day you're going to be married to one of these assholes. <laughs> um, I think she'd been married to two of those assholes. But, but you know, that's sort of how it works at the CIA. So, most people in the clandestine service, either they're going to marry or have relationships with other people in the clandestine service, 
or they're going to have um, romance romances with foreigners because you live overseas, mm-hmm. and um, and so those are problematic too. You know, if you if you marry a foreigner, it's a big setback in your career. Um, and I was very cognizant of that joining the agency. This was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. And I was dating this guy. And, and quite frankly, I was like, this is just not going to work. You know, this is, I, I can't continue this relationship. So he read, he read about himself, you know, years later in, in my book. And, you know, he went on to get a degree from UCLA and like particle physics. That was funny to me too, because at the agency, one of the agency HR people said to me, you got to lose this weightlifter. I'm like, he's not a weightlifter. He's a rock climber, you know, but I guess because he was Bulgarian, she assumed he was a weightlifter, but there was just this assumption that, um, you know, he's a foreigner and that's bad. And, you know, incredibly uh, bright guy who, who, yes, as I said, got a degree in particle physics and then realized years later when he read a translation of my book into Bulgarian, what I actually did. So let's get a, a bit of goss going. Uh, you couldn't tell him why you were breaking up with him. What what did you what did you tell him? Do you remember? Um, I think I said it's not you, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and I put him on a plane and sent him back to. I California. think I've dated a lot of women that were in the CIA. <laughs> yeah, possibly. If, if possibly. that's if that's the line. <laughs> that's one of the first things you learn in training (laughs) just when you're breaking it off actually it's no i mean you bring up an interesting question because um the process of recruiting a foreign source is very similar to a courtship and when you get to that point where you know you're pitching someone for recruitment it's it's almost like you know you're asking that person to marry you Similarly, when you terminate a source, and by terminate, I mean terminate the relationship. I don't mean off the person. Um, but you, it's, it's almost like a breakup. You want it to be um, uh, friendly, firm, and final. You know? So similar to breaking up with someone, you, know, you want to make it nice. You want to make sure there's not going to be a boiling rabbit on your stove. Um, but you want it to be final. And, um, and you want it to be firm, you know, like there's no, there's no going back. There's no chance we're going to get back together. So in a weird way, the CIA kind of trained us in how to break up with someone. Well, speaking of which, you graduate from the farm and get sent to Macedonia as your first assignment. Um, could you lay out the political situation, late 1990s in Macedonia, why this was an important place for the agency at that time? Yeah, um, kind of funny because I, I, you know, graduated. I, I mean, it's not like it's ranked, but I knew that I was like top of my training class at the agency, um, and and could have gone anywhere. And at that time, I don't know if the CIA still does it that way, but it's kind of like, um, you know, like uh, graduating at the top of your class at West Point. They give you choice of assignment. Yeah, well, it's more like the different divisions, um, uh, you know, will trade players and such. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, I wanted to go to what was then CE division, which was Central Eurasia, which was the former uh, Soviet states, um, different from Russia House, but, but also the Balkans. And I wanted to do that because I had lived over there. I had a little language capability when I lived in Bulgaria. I picked up Bulgarian um, and I just liked that part of the world. It's kind of screwed up. And also, you know, I also was like, this is a place where as a woman, I can be an effective case officer. So, um, so I was sent to Macedonia, which to my fellow trainees, they're like, you know, it wasn't even cut. Now it's called Northern Macedonia. At that time, it was called the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, because there's a big controversy between Greece and Macedonia about the name, but I won't get into that. Um, But in any event, Macedonia at that point, or Firam at that point, was one of the few former Yugoslav republics that had not disintegrated into bloody civil war and ethnic cleansing. Um, and then I showed up and, and then pretty quickly things went south. And it was funny because my mother, one of the few people who knew that I was working for the CIA, and once she figured out that I was not in Madagascar, where she thought I was for a while, but that I was in this place called Macedonia, and all of a sudden it's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and there's quite a bit of ethnic strife, there's quite a bit of civil unrest between um ethnic Albanians living in Macedonia, which is uh, just south of, of Kosovo, and, um, and Macedonian nationalists and the Macedonian army. It was, it was a great place to go as a neophyte spy because it was, uh, we were really interested in what was gonna happen there. We were also tracking former uh, Yugoslavian war criminals. Um, so that was something that we were really active in. Um, and this was like a very target rich environment and, and a small place. So it was a, a great place to go. Um, but it was interesting to me. I think it was Sebastian Younger uh, wrote a piece in Vanity Fair and I read it while I was in Macedonia and it was all about how dangerous Macedonia was and you couldn't even go out on the streets. And, you know, I was living there at the time and yeah, I mean, I would go to sleep at night with shelling in the distance. Um, and there was definitely, you know, there were roadblocks, there was unrest, there was, um, <clears throat> there were a lot of shootings, our embassy was attacked, we ended up having Marines come to the embassy uh, to protect the US embassy. So but the weird thing was, uh, I never felt in danger. And th- this will go back kind of to something that that you brought up earlier, Jack, which is that uh People always ask, I think, CIA uh, or, you know, if they know someone's been a CIA officer, you know, did you ever feel in, in danger? Did you ever fear for your life? And I have to be honest, I never did. And part of that was because I was much more stressed about my foreign sources that I was handling. That is... Um, someone who's doing something that you know is against their best interest that is put they, they could end up in jail they could you know um in in some parts of the world executed and you're the one responsible for their safety that was very daunting to me and very stressful so i was never really worried about my own well-being i was more worried about making sure that my foreign sources and the agents that i was handling were okay and that they wouldn't get wrapped up could you tell us a little bit about some of those sources that you're, what you're allowed to talk about as far as, you know, the ones that you, if you inherited them or the ones that you recruited, um, you know, by hand and developed on your own? There's, I, there's some great stories. I, I was actually going to ask a question that kind of like leads into that. When you show up your first tour, you've, you've never worked as a case officer before. 
how does that how does that handoff work? And then when you are given like your first source to recruit, how does that feel for you? And does it all work like training? And then you know, and then the sources you had. Yeah, um, I will say the training really, you know, did I think serve me well um, and, and served all of us well in terms of that process of of developing a spotting sources, developing sources. Um, and recruiting them. I mean, you, to me, what was funny was, you know, you do a lot of training at the farm for what's called blowback. That is, you know, if you're going to pitch a foreign agent, if you're a, a, a foreign source and you're going to try to recruit them, you want to be prepared if that person loses their shit. Um, and, you know, so we would do training at the farm where an instructor would turn over a coffee table full of cheese and crackers and be like, you know, I'm going to report you to the, to the local authorities. Um, so we'd done training in that and how to handle that. And then interestingly to me, the first source that I recruited, actually when I first broke cover with him, um, as a way of getting him not, not romantically interested, and this is something, you know, we can talk about if we have time, but a tightrope that all female case officers walk, I think, is you're, you know, most of our targets are men. So you're going to a foreign man and flattering him and act, acting interested in him. And then over time, suggesting that you meet in more clandestine venues and parked cars and hotels. And the whole time, you got to make it clear that you're not going to sleep with him. And this is something that's very difficult and challenging to do. So the first guy that I recruited, um, who was an Albanian uh, businessman who was very well connected, and, you know, he was always thinking we were going to have a romantic relationship, even when you know, I kept telling him no. Uh, and it was a relief to me when I decided to break cover and clear that with headquarters. And I told him, you know, actually, I'm a CIA officer, or I, I might not have said CIA. I said, you know, I work for the government, and this is this is what our relationship is. And um, he threw up his hands, and he said, I love the CIA! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hadn't trained for this kind of enthusiastic response i I loved the uh dialogue in your book where you're like recruiting him and you know you're trying to explain like yeah you're gonna work for the cia now and he's like yes yes so uh then uh we make the sexy time and you're like no 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 i give you money you give me information and he's like yes yes and then uh we make the sex and you're like no no you don't get it you have to, to do this job, which is a very serious and stressful job, but you have got to have a sense of humor because, because it's like you're living in a Borat movie. And, you know, the funny thing I remember with that particular source is, um, you know, I finally said to him, like, we are never going to have, like, that is never going to happen. This is a business relationship that's never going to happen. And he kind of paused for a minute and then he was like, even holding hands. I'm like, no. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is, you know, like you're, you're looking out for your sources and, and we, by that point, you know, we all have extensive training in, um, in personal security and surveillance. And, and so, you know, again, this particular guy and, and, and this is not a unique experience, but, you know, I had given him what security training I had, and and I remember um, going to pick him up at a car pickup site, and we were going to conduct a meeting in my car. And so he had specific instructions. I was going to pull up in my car. He was. I would push the. You know, I would have. Um, 
I would have my, uh, what's it called? I don't know, the rear view mirror thing, but not the rear view mirror thing, down so that he would know it was safe to enter my car. He had his safety signals. And I told him, you just hang out in the bushes. And then when I pull up, you get in the car, you know, stay in the bushes and then you get in the car. Well, one time I went to pick him up and he comes out and he had like a bouquet of flowers and he's like waving them around like he's bringing in an airplane or something. So that's another thing that's, I think stressful. This is not just true for female case officers. This is true for case officers in general. You know, the people that you're recruiting, these are people who are committing espionage. These are people who are like the Aldrich Ames of right. their country. So they're not always the most stable people. They're not always going to do what you tell them to do. Um, and no matter how much you try to train them in safeguarding themselves, they might put themselves at risk. And, and that's a, it's, it's a, you know, it, you, you go to sleep and wake up a lot with a pit in your stomach of worry. And how, how are you feeling about this as you kind of develop some of these sources, um, recruited others, you're writing, you know, presumably a lot of cable traffic back to headquarters. What are you starting to, how are you feeling about your CIA career? How are you feeling about this job now that you're actually doing it? It was very weird for me because I was good at it. You know, I, I was, I was, I was a good case officer. I think I was talented at it. I'm a people person. Um, and I was like, I'm, I'm good at this and I'm hitting the ground running. And, um, at the same time, I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't, I didn't get a rush from recruiting a foreign agent. I didn't feel what I think is really essential to thrive in that career. I didn't feel, uh, I felt acutely like this is not what I want to do for the rest of mm -hmm. my life. Um, and part of that was political, part of it was philosophical, um, but part of it was just plain personal, mm -hmm. that I was looking ahead to a, a career and a, and a lifestyle where, um, where I would be cut off from my family and cut off from normal relationships. And at some point, I thought, I'm starting to lose sight of who I am, and it the other warning that a, a, a mentor gave me once, uh, also a female mentor, and she said, you know, you have to be careful because you start to lie for your career and you end up lying about everything. And I found that to be very true. That lying was so, it became so inherent and so innate to me that I was lying uh, to everyone, to the people closest to me about things that even I didn't have to lie about. Right. And, and I didn't like that. I'd like to hear about this uh, this tasking. I, I mean, it was a tasking, but also something that kind of happened by happenstance to you, where you started looking at gathering information about the ultranationalist paramilitary groups in Macedonia. And if you could kind of tell us how that came about. Yeah, so, you know, pre-9-11, we were, uh, the U.S. and the CIA was really interested in what was going to happen in Macedonia. Um, not just, I mean, there, there were re later related to the war on terror, you know, Macedonia and the Balkans are a, a big transit point or were at a transit point for Islamic extremists and for all kinds of activity, nefarious activity. But at that point, we were very interested in what was going to happen in Macedonia, believe it or not. 
And so, you know, I was tasked with kind of infiltrating these um, nationalistic group, nationalist groups. And a lot of them were, you know, former military or former law enforcement, and they had kind of silly names, you know, similar to what we see happening here in the in the you know you know the proud boys i mean they the in macedonia I think. oh it's like like the lion of macedonia kind of stuff yeah you know so they all had and um and so i remember once i was targeting this one um individual and you know went to a bar in macedonia and there was like a a raid like a law enforcement came in and asked everybody to put their weapons on the table and literally everybody you know <laughs> weapons start coming out and i was the old here i am i'm like i'm like a the cia person and i don't have a weapon <laughs> and everybody else is just like a a, a potpourri of web cornucopia of weapons um so and the other thing that i think you really have to do as a case officer that, that wasn't hard for me is you you've got to be a chameleon and, you know, you're recruiting sources who might be expressing views that are abhorrent to you. Right. And in the case of the Macedonian nationalists at that time, you know, they, they were very anti-American. America was seen as siding with the Albanian Muslims. Um, and so the Macedonian nationalists were quite angry at us. And, you know, I would find myself in situations where very um, racist or xenophobic um, opinions were being expressed and it was the kind of thing where i had to kind of play along or act like that didn't bother me um, already then yeah and that's not my nature so and that's something that i think diplomats have to do as, as well and it's you know it's like if you if you can believe you're serving your country to do that then okay. But, uh, you know, as, as I think I've shown in my post-CIA career, I, I'm probably more attuned to being outspoken. But th this whole thing was like even weirder because I think what were, you were like on your way to prepare a dead drop or something like that, where you were riding on your bicycle and like Thank Igor you. and Ivan are in the bushes preparing to ambush you and like they click their safety off their Kalashnikov and you're riding your bicycle by like, holy shit! Yeah, I was riding my bike up um, up uh, uh, Mount Vodno, and I was I was going to make a chalk mark on a, a water fountain, and that was a, like a signal to one of my agents. And so I'm riding my bike up, and I see this kind of motley crew of like paramilitary looking guys as I'm on my bike on the way up, and I pass them, and I think, oh, that's sort of a sketchy looking trio. Um, and I had my hair back, baseball cap, like for all intents and purposes, I probably looked like, uh, I did not look like a female. Um, and so after making my chalk mark, I'm, you know, flying down the mountain and I see these guys ahead of me because they're still kind of on their way up and they all, and they've all, you know, they're all armed um, and they jump into the bushes. And I was like, oh, shoot, uh, shit. Uh, <laughs> I probably thought something else, but Anyway, I kind of screeched to a halt where they were. And luckily I knew I spoke Serbian well enough at that time to, uh, to, to um, issue some obscenities. And they realized probably from my voice and my accent that I, I was a woman and, uh, 
and that I was an American and they came out, um, you know, we ended up having a nice talk and being friends. And it was one of those guys that he was like, oh, you know, I'm looking for a visa to the United States. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, why don't we meet? We can talk about that. Um, and he was someone who I ended up uh, targeting and, and developing. The other thing, and I don't think I wrote about this in the book, maybe just because it was too complicated, but I was wearing a T-shirt, uh, an old T-shirt that I have that had... Um, applique across the front that was originally lucky it was the word lucky but the l and the y had fallen off and it was just ucheka or uck which was the, the name of one of the um ins insurgent groups so <laughs> that did not work in my favor either i don't know i think in the book i thought that was way too complicated to explain but yeah there i was like with an ucheka t-shirt riding down the hill and, and then this this got even weirder because at a, I, I was like, couldn't believe this part where like you brought one of your girlfriends into this from like New York City and like she was chilling at like the ultra nationalist cafe with you <laughs> and all this, this like ragtag militiamen. <laughs> so yeah, two of my closest girlfriends, one of whom's uh, Bulgarian by birth and the other... Um, who's a novelist, uh, and I have another story to tell about that. Um, but yeah, she, um, she had a Fulbright scholarship to Bulgaria at the time, which to this day, she is convinced that I pulled some kind of CIA strings to, to get Milk her it. a Fulbright to Sophia, which I did not. Uh, she got that on her own merit. But um, yeah, she, <laughs> she was in town. And um, yeah, perfect cover. You know, I'm just like a girl with my American girl. So I would drag her, you know, her parents and family probably would have killed me <laughs> if they knew what was going on. But I would drag her along for some of those uh, adventures. Yeah, and she was, she was like, Lindsay, like all. Her. I do have to tell you about her because it's a kind of, yeah. we have time, it's a kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So her name's Annie Ward and she's a novelist. And um, she had a book come out, I think it was two years ago, called Beautiful Bad, um, which she sold in like a three-way bidding war to HarperCollins. She's an amazing writer. But anyway, um, Annie's book is a novel. It's a thriller in kind of the Gone Girl style. And there's three characters, one of whom is based very closely on me. And before Annie... Uh, sold her book, she kept telling me, you know, you have to read this book because the character who I got the sense was kind of a villainous character is based very closely on you. And, and, you know, I want to make sure you're okay with it. And I, you know, she's my best friend. I was like, I don't care if my character eats her own in the book, it, you know, as long as you don't use my name and, and it helps you sell the book. She sold her book after the book was sold, the, the character that's based on me, the editors were like, look, this woman is not believable because she's just like way too badass and like she's a CIA person and nobody's going to believe that. It's not relatable. So you have to turn her into something else. And so um, she, she made that character, Joanna, not a CIA character, not a CIA officer. But so of... Of, of everything in my life, my one, I feel like the one thing that I'm most proud of is that who I actually am was too badass to be <laughs> in a novel. In a novel. Yeah. That's awesome. And it, it was, I thought it was hilarious when, you know, you took your friend with you to this like cafe where everyone was like brandishing these weapons and like, 
you get outside and smoking a cigarette or something and she's like what did she say to you she's like when's your all of your friends like this how do you what do you do you know god bless her she uh she was always up for the adventure and through me she met uh, her future husband who's still her husband today who's who's one of the third characters in her in her thriller um but yeah, the, the night that she met her husband, it was just one of those nights where I was like, all right, tonight we're going out with like a British security detail. And she's like, all right, whatever. Um, so yeah, but you know, none of my friends knew, um, knew what my job was. I think, I, I think a couple of them had suspicions and, and she of all people uh, certainly saw me, um, you know, very, very stressed. Didn't know what I was stressed about, but she was in uh, Sofia and I was in um, Skopje, Macedonia when 9-11 happened. And um, she got on a, a bus uh, that night from Sofia and, and um, came and, and stayed with me. And so this was like, a, you know, obviously 9-11 was a seminal moment for all Americans who were alive at that time. For me personally, and I think for everybody working for the CIA, uh, you know, there was no there was no getting around the unspoken truth that this was the biggest intelligence failure of our time. And it was a, it was a very weird and, and hard experience to, you know, to feel in some way responsible. Mm -hmm. And how, how did that change things? How did things shake out? Because at the same time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like tensions were starting to flare up in Macedonia independent, having nothing to do with nine 11, um, like you tell a story about how like your cat and all of her kittens got poisoned by the neighbor because of anti-Americanism had gotten so strong. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a very strong anti-American uh, sentiment in Macedonia at that time. But after 9-11, there were celebrations in the street in front of our embassy. Um, and that was, you know, that was hard. It, it was upsetting. Um Again, yes, I had a cat who had kittens and and they were poisoned. I wasn't the only um, CIA person there or American person there who I think had those kind of repercussions um, or that kind of backlash. Uh, and, and I will say this, I already had, you know, pretty um, significant misgivings about staying with the agency. And for a little while after 9-11, I was very committed to staying with the organization because I felt like um, this terrible thing has happened. And now, you know, we, we are all united in this and the agency will get its act together and it won't be a big bumbling bureaucracy and there won't be careerism and there won't be um, lack of accountability. We're all going to, you know, band together and, and fight this war on terror. Um, and then I, you know, I quickly realized that 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 probably wasn't going to be the case either. But uh, it was a it was a hard time. I, I think at the, it, it was both a hard time and a and a revitalizing time because mm -hmm. I think I wasn't the only one. You know, we all felt very passionately about um, tracking Osama bin Laden, about eradicating Al Qaeda, about um, about fighting this war in a way. But, uh, you know, these are these are very complex issues and the CIA, you know, it, it became like a, a game of whack-a-mole to a certain extent. And instead of being able to go and, you know, kick some ass over in Afghanistan, 
you got roped into the preparation for the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So, I mean, could you tell us about that? Like, how did that make you feel, you know, as a, uh, a self-avowed bleeding heart liberal? I mean, I, I see now, now here in 2021, I can tell you perfectly well how I feel about that, what a disaster that war was. But at the time, I was, what, 19 or 20 in the Army, in Ranger training, all, all stoked up. I, I, I just missed the invasion barely myself. I wish I could have been there. Um, but... This is like an example of how your feelings about things can change over time. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and perfectly honestly, um, I didn't go. I was surge. I was in uh, language lessons for a follow-on tour. Um, I can't say where that was going to be, but I can say that I was in um, Russian language lessons at the time when I was uh, back in the States and I was taken out of those language lessons and what's called surged into Iraqi operations. So it wasn't, I wasn't, thrown into Iraq. I mean, we were preparing for the invasion. Um, but I was at headquarters supporting Iraqi operations from headquarters. And that was not my area of expertise. Um, WMD, counterproliferation, Iraq, that was not, you know, that was, that was not my bailiwick. Uh, but at the CIA, and this is very common at the CIA, you know, you go where you're asked to go, and you become an expert pretty quickly. And one of the first things that happened when I was surged into Iraqi operations was I ran into the person who's the head of Iraqi operations who I knew from the Balkans. And he was like, yeah, I got to tell you, um, we don't have any Iraqi sources. Like we just don't, like all over the world, we don't have any Iraqi sources. I'm like, hmm, that's not really good. Um, and then I spoke to um, analysts who had worked this issue in this region for years who also told me, yeah, we don't have any evidence of a link between Iraq and WMD. And there's also no relationship between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. So it was a very surreal experience for me uh, to be, you know, waking up in the morning and looking at the Washington Post and reading one thing and then going into headquarters and and realizing that the the what was being presented to the American public was not the truth. Um, and I think a seminal or watershed moment for me at headquarters was I was not at this particular meeting, uh, but a colleague told me about it, a colleague from counterproliferation who was in the counterproliferation division, um, who said, uh, that like not a middle manager, fairly high level manager had gathered a group of them, maybe 50 people together and said, look, let's face it. The president wants to go to war and our job is to give him a reason to do so. And, uh, that just really, really, you know, struck me to my core because that's not why I joined the CIA and that's not why the CIA exists. Yeah. We, uh, we had Scott Ritter on, uh, many moons ago, who was a UN weapons inspector through, I mean, through before all that. And he said that ever since Bush one through the Clinton administration and then Bush two, like elements of the government, uh, they, they were gunning for Iraq that entire we, time. We've, we've had Sam Faddis on the show. We have had Tracy Walder. We've yeah. had all, all these different people. And, you know, I, I, I don't say this to, to kiss the CIA's ass by any means, but I think there's enough people have come forward. There's enough evidence that, like, the CIA was not on board with all this malicious bullshit, quote-unquote, intelligence that there were WMDs in Iraq. And just as you said, Lindsay, that 
a policy decision had already been made, mm -hmm. and now the CIA was being like forced to legitimize that decision. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, as much as I both criticize and poke fun of the CIA in my book, and I've done so publicly, um, I met some of the brightest, uh, most dedicated, most ethical individuals there. And, um, and when I joined the CIA and pe people who were at the CIA before me, um, you know, it really, there is, you, you park your politics at the door. Um, you know, it tends to attract, you know, it doesn't, I might as well have been, I'm not that far left, but I might as well have been like Joan Baez, you know, strumming my guitar <laughs> because the CIA tends to mean right. It tends to attract those types of people. Um, at the same time, I never felt like my work was politicized. You know, my, my work, if anything, there was an element of careerism that I think was stronger than the politics of it. But I would say that uh, CIA clandestine officers go out there, they want to recruit sources because that will get their, that will further their career. But also I think there is an ethos to, to get the truth and to get the information that's not being conveyed in diplomatic channels. And, and there's not a political agenda behind it. And where and how that became derailed, you know, in my mind, it was uh, with the Bush administration and, and Dick Cheney drove a lot of that. Um, but again, that's when I was there and that's what I saw and, and that's what I heard about. It's been very disheartening to me since then to see the agency portrayed as as a kind of political organization. And if it's not the right wing, you know, this notion that the agency is some kind of, you know, that there's the deep state and it's all these liberals. I mean, that's like preposterous. You mean the CIA is not woke? <laughs> it's so far from woke. Yes. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's more woke now, but, you know, at, at the time that I was there, yeah, it's, it's um, if you look up anti-woke in the dictionary, you might come to the agency. It's so, what what was your experience like after you know that initial reception working Iraqi ops at, at Langley? I mean, what was that experience? How did that all go down through your time there and the invasion? Well, that was where I you know at that point I was like uh, preparing my my exit strategy. Um, you know, and a lot of people said, "Oh, she joined the CIA she, so she could write a book." Not at all. Um, but I did also reckon I'm like you know. I kind of have something to say and I think um, and I think I can get this cleared and I think people should know it. And it was my my thought process was do a fold one. I, I wanted to put a human face on on what it is to be a spy. And I, I I do believe and I've had other people tell me that my book was one of the only um, books to do that in a very genuine manner. Um, and the other thing was, you know, with the, the intelligence budget is is classified, but we as American taxpayers spend an inordinate amount of money on the CIA, on, on the intelligence, so they're on the intelligence budget. So there was a part of me while we're gearing up for this war in Iraq, you know, we were supposed to have been devoting all our resources to finding uh, Osama bin Laden and to tracking Al Qaeda and eradicating Al Qaeda. And all of a sudden we're in Iraq you know, it was like, did we throw a dart at the map? And um, 
so there was a part of me that that did want to expose that but wanted to expose it in a way that wasn't going to land me in jail mm-hmm. um so i decided that you know i would write a book and i and i would try to get it cleared uh i will say it was a very disquieting time though because you know you you're you're already i'm already lying to everyone i know and then I'm going into headquarters knowing that, you know, that I'm going to leave, knowing that I'm not devoted to, to this place and, and knowing that things are happening that are not right. When I first joined the agency, one of my final interviews was with a woman and who had been at the agency for decades. And she said to me, if you ever see or sense something is not right, you need to speak up and you need to tell your superiors. And I I remember being so heartened by that because I thought not only am I joining this organization that I have always wanted to be a part of, but this is a this is a moral place, this or this is an ethical place. This is a place where there will be accountability. And I think in the time that I was there, I saw that not only was there not accountability internally, but we did suffer one of the biggest intelligence failures of our time. And then we cooked the books for a war where a lot of lives were lost. And we created, a, I think, in, in my opinion, uh, a breeding ground for further terrorist activity. So the invasion was in March of 2003. When did you, when did you go to the Iraqi working group? And how long had it been in existence before you got there? Um, I don't remember the exact dates, uh, but I believe that I was surged over there in um, December of 2002, or it might have been January of 2003. So it was, you know, a, a short period of time. And it was a kind of like, yeah, we were gearing up, we were gearing up for war. So it was an all hands on deck scenario where people who weren't already out in the field working on um, critical missions or are serving in critical posts, a lot of people who were in language lessons back in the States or were in some other part of headquarters were surged to Iraqi operations. Right. And so there's this Iraqi operations group planning for this invasion. You don't have any sources in Iraq. You don't have any intel on or intel on nuclear weapons, what what did you guys focus on or work on from like December to March? Well, there was a fervent effort to try to get some Iraqi sources. I mean, we had we had CIA case officers all over the world, you know, chasing Iraqis in their pajamas down the streets <laughs> of London, you know, cold pitching them. I mean, we were like we were desperate to get uh, to get some sources and to develop to develop uh, some sources either that you know then we could. Um, place back in Iraq after the invasion, but, you know, it was a real kind of desperate game of, of, um, of catch up that, uh, that would have been funny if it were not so serious. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that like Chalabi's position and, and, and where he wound up kind of pointed to the United States com- total unawareness, you know, unawareness of you know what was going on and who was important and 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 sort of who mattered in that area or region at the time yeah and and i mean it's worth noting that that's not the first time that's happened that's yeah. not the first time that the agency has has propped up its leader of choice 
and that that has been a flop or, or, or a failure. Um, you know, I always say human intelligence is very um, important. It's a critical part of our national security. But, you know, you would have to be an idiot not to look back at history and look at the things that the CIA missed in terms of predicting them, um, to look at some of the damage that has, has been done uh, by, by some of our operations and to not wonder, like, is it really worth it? You know, is this an organization that, that does good or does it do more harm than good? And I'm not saying definitively, but I think it's certainly something that's open for debate. And, you know, one thing that I think the agency is not good at, um, and, and differs regime change. What's that? Regime change. Yeah, always fucks up the regime. regime change. Damn, can't we get that right once? Um, well, that, but also um, I, I talked a little bit before about uh, accountability. Uh, but beyond accountability, it's, it's looking back and being self-critical. You know, how many times have we given weapons and training to uh, insurgency groups or rebel groups that have then turned that around on us, um, countless. Uh, and, you know, I remember talking to my brother, you know, who served his career in the Navy and, and also spent his, his adult life, you know, in the, in the Persian Gulf and serving in Iraq. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and the one thing that, you know, he would always talk about are these kind of the ways in which the military will look back on failed operations and learn from those and adjust in the future. And, uh, you know, maybe it doesn't happen all the time, but I think it's a, it's a protocol that the military follows, whereas at the agency, it's like, oh, geez, snafu, let's sweep that under the carpet yeah, and, you know, yeah. make sure nobody finds out about it. You, you know, the CIA does have historians and they write white papers and, you know, nerds like me actually read them as they're declassified. Um, they do look for those lessons learned, but I think you're right that there is something, some sort of disconnect, and there is a story that has not yet been written. And, of course, that's the story of our covert operations in Syria, where we turned around and made all of these fucking mistakes all over again. I, I wonder, and Lindsay, you, can have, you, you might have some deeper insight into this, is how much of that is driven by politics? Because, generally, the CIA isn't out there making up their own sort of target list or you know we want to do this like it's it's generally coming from somewhere and unlike the military where if the military is set somewhere and it turns out to be an error everybody in the world knows if the agency goes somewhere and it turns out to be an error you know they go back and oh that's an interesting that's an interesting point. and the politicians who directed it whether you know the Republican or Democrat because they both do it. That it's easier to wash their hands. Yeah, and then and that um, that you know so one hundred percent the agency gets these things wrong. But also I wonder how many times they're under pressure from the politics of the day to make something happen. I think that's a, a part of it, um, and I also think, and you know, I'd be the first one to say. Um, we generally hear uh, more quickly about phenomenal uh, CIA failures and that the successes are 
understandably and necessarily kept under wraps. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, and, and it's a challenge of the job, you know, when you sign up to be a, a case officer to work for the CIA, you know, you've got to go and you've got to park your own ego at the door and you've got to go in knowing, okay, I might have the coolest job in the world, but I can't tell anybody about right. it. And any successes that I have, I can't tell anybody about that. So, you know, I, I certainly think, um, I certainly think that that is at play, that there's a lot that, you know, people don't know. And then, you know, years later, um, some stuff is declassified and nerds like Jack read it. And so there, you know, some of the, or there's a movie like Argo. And so, you know, some of the successes, um, some of the successes are, are showcased. And I love those. Like, you know, Argo is one of my mm -hmm. favorite movies. Like my, my favorite scene in, in Argo is uh, where the CIA people are, are presenting the idea. Um, I think it's to the vice president or definitely to the White House. And, um, and it just seems like such a preposterous idea. And, uh, and the, I think it's the vice president or someone from the White House is, is like, um, you know, do you have any more bad ideas? And the CIA person says, no, sir, this is by far the best bad idea we have. <laughs> it just, you know, it really, it, in a way, it makes me feel warm toward the agency because you do have people in there throwing crazy ideas at the wall. And the one thing that I do think I appreciated about it that is unlike the military is that the CIA is like, all right, you know, let's try this crazy idea. And, um, and when it doesn't go right, it, you know, it really, it really doesn't go right. right. I mean, the, the, you guys are probably, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the agency op that um, was collecting DNA evidence in Abbottabad in Pakistan, um, under the guise of uh, polio vaccinations. And so, you know, that created, once it was revealed, you know, it created extreme distrust and there was a resurgence of polio in, in Pakistan. And I remember hearing about that and thinking, I can just see a bunch of CIA people sitting around a round table and someone's like, I've got an idea. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's offer polio vaccinations and get DNA and see if any of these people are related to Osama bin Laden. It's like, all right, it's a good idea, but, you know, the ripple effects and the blowback are probably going to be pretty significant. Yeah. Whatever. And, 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 and it's like you say, had that operation been successful, nobody ever would have known about it or how how successful it may have been. It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like had that never, you know, had that never come to light. I mean, you can, you know, you can argue about the morality and, and ethics of it. And, that, and this is something that I struggled with. And one reason I think the CIA was not you know, not an appropriate place for me to spend the rest of my career, because at a certain level, I am an idealist, and I am a, you know, a moral purist, and that, and the CIA is no, no place for someone like that. Right. So, Lindsay, you, you get out of the CIA, you write this book, uh, by the way, it's called Blowing My Cover, you guys should go check it out on Amazon, Lindsay tells me, the book is coming out, an audiobook, there it is, up on screen, uh, it's coming out on audiobook, what, next week? It is. And, you know, full disclosure, the book, like me, is old, but still relevant. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, yeah, I, uh, during lockdown, um, I haven't read my book in years. I haven't looked at it in years. You know, I wrote it over a summer, just uh, wrote it and was like, I'm going to send this to the CIA and see if they'll chop off on it. And, 
they eventually did. That was a bit of a, 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 bit, a bit of a, a saga and ordeal. Um, but it, it remains, uh, it remains really relevant. I, I wrote it as, uh, you know, as on the one hand, kind of a lighthearted memoir. I really wanted to put a human face on what it really is to be a spy, because I, I think that was something that we had never seen before. Mm -hmm. The Hollywood portrayals of, of spies and intelligence operatives are way far off the mark, um, or at least at that time were. Anyway, during lockdown, I started listening to Audible books. And all of a sudden, I thought, wait, I should get my book out on Audible. So I, I called my agent. And I said, yeah, can we get this done? And so, um, yeah, so it comes out next uh, next week. Yeah, it's on Amazon. You can pre-order it right now. I'm going to uh, paste a link to the audiobook that you can pre-order in the uh, chat. I, I have to say, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I read a lot of these memoirs, uh, especially doing this show. We try to read the book of every guest we have on, if they have one. I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a, a great read, and, and it is really funny also. Um, and on that note, I'd like to hear what the reception was to your book, because I know not everyone in the agency was necessarily pleased with uh, you or the book when it came out. <laughs> to say the least, yeah. It got a lot of guys' panties in a twist, that's for sure. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, it wasn't so much that it was critical of the agency, because there have been other uh, memoirs and books that written that have been critical of the agency. And it wasn't so much that it revealed a lot, because... Um, I was very careful. And, and in fact, when the agency cleared my book, I can count on both hands the number of words probably they had me change Wow! Uh, in terms of redactions. Yeah, my book was one of the, as far as I can tell, one of the few books where there were very few redactions. Uh, I mean, I had already written it with the aim toward not exposing any sources or methods or classified information, but telling my story, a very kind of personal story. Um, but it, you know, it poked fun at the agency and it pulled back the curtain a little bit, I think, on this mythical, omnipotent organization. Um, and it, it exposed, I would say, less the evil of the agency, because it's not an evil organization made up by evil people, but a little bit more of the incompetence, uh, the bureaucracy, some of the double standards, some of the lack of accountability, Um and, uh, you know, I still have friends who, who are still uh, at the CIA, um, although, you know, we used to joke that there's a kind of like reverse Darwinism there, you know, it's sort of the, <laughs> the survival of the most mediocre, I think the best and the brightest don't end up spending entire careers there. Um, but when the book came out, you know, a friend of mine called me, um, I don't know if he, I think he even called me from a payphone at like the basement of headquarters. And he was like, there's people walking through the hallway, you know, with the book. I mean, it's sold out at the Tyson's Corner uh, borders or Barnes and Nobles <laughs> very quickly. And people were probably looking for themselves. Um, but there was definitely a split. I think the kind of old school, good old boys network, you know, were outraged. Here was a woman who who A, was a woman, uh, B, had not been at the agency very long, um, who was, in their minds, uh, exposing things and, and also didn't know, you know, what she was talking about. Um, and that's fine that, you know, they're all entitled to their opinion. There was a whole other camp uh, of people who were like, you know, this is 
pretty accurate and it's it's funny and it was interesting when I was getting the book cleared by the pre-publication review board which for listeners who don't know is the entity that vets and clears or doesn't clear material written by former CI officers the head of the pre-publication review board at that time was a former justice department uh, justice department lawyer and um in the back and forth he, the agency had originally told me, uh, you're never going to get this clear. This is, it's not going to happen. Give it up. Forget about it. And I was prepared to go to bat against them because I had read pretty much every other agency memoir that was out there, all of which had been written by men at that time. I knew I hadn't revealed anything that had not been revealed before. Um, so I was prepared to you know, challenge them on that. By the time I resubmitted the book and finished it, there was a new head of the pre-publication review board. And he uh, he said to me, he's like, I'm not supposed to say this, but you really captured the people there. And this is really funny. Uh, it's my thought that he, he kind of went to bat for me against the agency and, and any sort of people said, you know, we, we can't let this out there and said, look, you know, she doesn't have classified information in here. This is her opinion. You can't censor people's opinions. So, yeah, there were two camps. Um, I'm, I've always been amazed by how relevant it has remained. I've had people who've gone to the agency and left the agency who've said that when they were recruited, their CIA recruiters will say, okay, here's a list of books you should read. And whatever you do, don't read Blowing My Cover. Right. And um, so, of course, you know, you're recruiting people for the CIA. They're all going to go get that. So thank you, CIA, for helping the book sales. Um, and everybody I know who's read it, who's ended up at the CIA, has said the same thing. And it's the same thing with me. If I had read a book like mine before I joined the agency, I would have joined the agency anyway. You know, right, right. clandestine <laughs> service attracts people who have minds of their own and they're going to, you know, they're going to do what they want anyway. Um, but it's, the book has certainly stood the test of time, you know, and I still have particularly um, women who leave the CIA and tell me that they read my book before joining, they joined anyway. And then as they made that decision to get out, they kind of looked at my book as like the shining light that, that gave them hope. Yeah. Folks, if you have questions for Lindsay, please get them in. Uh, we have one here for you, a, a viewer question. Uh, Jim G, he asks, uh, does she think that anyone who knew? Oh, I'm sorry, I lost it. Does she think that anyone who knows may let future historians know why we really invaded Iraq in 2003? Kind of answered that, but do you have anything to add to that? Um, well, I mean, I think there's a lot that's been written about that. There's a, a lot that's been written about the, uh, you know, the Cheney <laughs> agenda or the yeah, yeah. agenda to go in, to go into Iraq. I mean, are you ever going to have someone who, you know, comes out and says, like, look, we at the CIA knew that there was no, you know, evidence of WMD, and yet we put, that's not really what happened. You know, it wasn't like a diabolical plot or anything. And it wasn't really, you know, sort of a geopolitical scheme, you know, with with uh, leaders in a room going like this. You know, I think there, there was, there were Geopolit specific geopolitical reasons and agenda for for wanting to pursue that tactic in Iraq. And 
you know, George Tennant, who was the head of the CIA at that time, he was, I would say, like, to a certain extent, you know, kind of a yes man. I mean, he had, he had close relationships with every administration that he served. I mean, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that there was a mandate, you know, that conversation that I referred to previously about uh, the man saying, the, the sort of senior level manager saying our job is to give the president a reason to go to war. That was written about, I wrote about it in my book and also James Bamford wrote about it in his book. So it was reported elsewhere. Um, but do I think, you know, there will ever be a, a comprehensive book explaining that, you know, I think it probably would have come out by now, but there's certainly been plenty of evidence to suggest that that was a misguided, um, misguided war effort. Brad asks, Familiar with Ishmael Jones' book, Human Factor, and take on bureaucracy of CIA being risk-averse management. Um, I guess he's asking if you're familiar with Ishmael Jones and what you thought of, uh, of his book. I, I am familiar with him. Yeah, I know him. We've met on uh, more than one occasion. And kind of funny story, he, he sent me uh, his book um, in galley form, I think, uh, years ago, before it was published, and asked me to read it and write a blurb about it uh, for the book. And I did. And I thought it was funny. And I thought it was well written. And I was like, here's a here's someone who, you know, spent a lot a longer career at the agency, who was um, saying a lot of the same stuff, not politically, I think he and I probably have, you know, sort of different political bends, but, you know, really poking fun at and criticizing the bureaucracy of the agency. I wrote him a, a great blurb for the book. And then I said, um, you know, geez, how'd you get that clear? I'm really, really surprised that you were able to get that clear. Turns out he had not. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, you know, uh, his, the human factor was taken off all the shelves. Uh, he lost a uh, lawsuit ag against the CIA or I guess, you know, the CIA. I'm not sure he sued the CIA or they sued him. But, um, but he lost that lawsuit. Um, kind of a shame because it was, a, it, was a really, it was a really good book. I still have my copy and, you know, I don't know. Maybe He's I'll lucky there. he didn't end up in jail. Holy shit. He's very lucky he didn't end up in jail. And, you know, he's a really, uh, you know, I've, I've met him in person, really interesting, interesting, smart guy. Um, and I think was, you know, very good at his job as a, as a knock, but he, yeah, the, I mean, I mean, there was a certain amount, I was, I was shocked that, that he did that, uh, you know, shocked that I, that's a chance that I, I send my Christmas card to the CIA, yeah, to yeah. Clear. you know, I don't mess around with that because yeah. I don't want to end up in jail. Uh, Isaac says vice once, uh, vice once a piece, I guess they ran a piece when they brought a nuke leftover from the SU. Do you have a guess of much material or unaccounted for waste is on the black market? That's a little bit confusing. Uh, About the Ellison. Soviet Union? Soviet Union. I, don't, I, I guess, yeah, he's asking a question if you, have, you know about a lot of um, unaccounted for fissile material from the former Soviet Union that's floating around out there, I think, on the black market. I believe that's what he's asking. Um, I don't. <laughs> Full disclosure. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure there is, you know, again, I referred, uh, you know, previously to, you know, when and, and this is 
related, but doesn't answer the question, but somewhat related, you know, that we've given training and, and weapons in the past um, to various different groups and then, you know, ended up years later running around trying to buy back our material and our, and our weapons. Um, but yeah, in terms of that kind of, that, that's not my area of expertise. So I don't know. When you, when you were in Macedonia and your friend came out, obviously it was, there was violence going on and all the armed people, but were you and your friend, were you relatively safe as Americans? Was most of the violence more of like ethnic cleansing or, you know, like ethnically oriented and not just sort of rampant violence? Yeah, you know, again, I, I, um, I never felt like my life was in danger. And also, um, I blended in quite well, you know, I, I look like I could be Macedonian, I uh, spoke the language well enough at that time. Um, I didn't generally hang out with other Americans or expats, you know, I had a robust, I think, network of local friends. Um, you know, hung out with like rock climbers and weren't part of any of that violence. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's funny because now, you know, I'm 51, I'm a mom. I, I look back on, on the life that I led. <laughs> my mother, my grandmother, my mother knew that I worked for the CIA. She had no idea what I was up to. My grandmother didn't know until my book came out and, you know, they were just floored. Um, but I never, you know, I really, there were a couple occasions where maybe like I was a little bit nervous. Um, you know, I had a safe room in my house. And I just remember thinking like if everything went to hell in a handbasket, I was not going to like lock myself in that bathroom. I was going to like go out in the street and kind of blend in. Um, but I, I don't remember ever feeling scared. I really don't. I think it's also, I'm oh, sorry, I think it's also interesting that you said that when you were in the bar and everybody put their guns on, you know, condoms on the table and you didn't have one, that's very, uh, that's the polar opposite of what most Americans think of the CIA and foreign <laughs> countries. Like you, you know, you're, you're part of a hit squad, right? You're part of a hit team. She, that they she has the up. briefcase that opens up and there's a sniper rifle in there that you put together from like three different right. parts. And the briefcase is bulletproof so you can like use it for cover while you're yeah, running yeah. from, yeah. But I didn't need a, a gun because I had these little daggers that popped out of my shoes. Right, right. <laughs> the, the flower, yeah, the spray it poison. It amazes me. Um, and years later, I did a I did a long term substitute teaching position as an English teacher at this kind of Tony private school in our area, um, and uh, and the students knew that I used to be a CIA uh, officer. And so at the end of English class, these were eighth graders, at the end of English class every day, I told them that at the end of class, they could ask me one CIA question a day. Every day they asked me the same question, did I ever kill anyone? And every day I was like, okay, I told you yesterday, I didn't kill anyone, didn't kill anyone last night. So we're it's a still new day. Let's change it up. Um, but yeah, again, you know, people have this very skewed idea of, you know, CIA, you're an assassin, your your skin. And, you know, in in the defense of the of the American public or the general public, you know, that's what Hollywood has tended to uh, portray. Yeah, a show that I really love, the show The Americans. Um, one of the reasons that I like that show is because I think it does a very good job of depicting the FBI officer um, or the FBI agent. And it does a good job of depicting the, um, 
the Soviet embassy. But the whole notion of of the character, I think her name's Elizabeth, you know, like where she kills people in parking lots with a single blow. Like, I hate all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, it really... It dehumanizes what the job is. And this is, there could not be a more human role than being a, a CIA case officer. Yeah. Uh, Jameson says someone on Amazon wrote a review, I guess, of your book saying there's way too much rock climbing. What does that mean? <laughs> Well, so many people in my life would agree with, with that. <laughs> way too much rock climbing dated, way too many rock climbers. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, I've always had a, um, uh, a, I guess, a thirst for adventure. I am a calculated risk taker. Um, I'm not a climber anymore, Um not necessarily by more by by lifestyle, you know, it just my, my life doesn't allow room for it. Um, but yeah, it was there's there's no real connection or correlation between between being a rock climber and and being a CIA operative. But I yeah, I could have scaled walls, I guess, if I wanted to. I Patrick, thank you so much. Um, Lindsay, I, if I can ask you to stick around for the bonus segment after we finish here, um, it, I think that'd be a good time to talk about uh, your your previous your work on talking about the uh, torture program. Um, yeah. And in the meantime, you know, as we're kind of starting to wrap up a little bit here for tonight, and thank you everyone who joined us tonight watching this show live, and and please subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, and take we'll post a link down in the description to Lindsay's book going to be out on audio uh next week and there's also going to be a, a link down there to our patreon page if you want to have access to our bonus segments so thank you everyone i think we have like a couple things we missed uh john duggan do we he says cheers thank okay. you and i uh, let me see if there was one more um but i wanted to ask you about you know your work with the eia and what you're up to today you know you're kind of post service career post cia career yeah sure um <clears throat> so my my undercover days are are over uh for the most part yeah, i have two teenage boys um who are kind of like foreign agents in a way <laughs> <laughs> much less easily controlled and manipulated um but yeah, I, I would say like as I've evolved uh, philosophically and politically and psychologically, um, I really wanted to uh, to devote um, the rest of my li life to being maybe less of like an American and more of a, a global citizen. Um, I work as head of communications for a small nonprofit called the Environmental Investigation Agency um, that does undercover investigation to track environmental crime and criminals um, and does a lot of advocacy to try to create uh, or pushed for policies that uh, will enable environmental and social justice. Um, so it's kind of in, in many ways like a perfect fit for me. You know, again, I'm not, I'm the head of communication, so I'm, it's not, um, I'm not doing the undercover work, but I feel like I'm bringing 
a lot of my background, both in investigation and also communications. I've done quite a bit of television work uh, through the through the years um, and public speaking, and and bringing that to a cause that I think is probably the most important cause of our time, which is uh, combating climate change and trying to save this planet and making it habitable. And you know, a lot of people I think don't realize how closely aligned. Uh, climate change and environmental degradation are with national security all over the world. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can combat all of this in a way before it's too late. But if you go to any part of the world and you have dwindling resources, dwindling water, uh, dwindling food, um, the uh, ripple effects of climate change, and those are all of the factors that add to civil unrest, that add to growth of uh, terrorist networks and to wars, um, to famine, to all of those things that create the atmosphere where there's going to be where there's going to be need for um, intervention. So, in in a weird way, it seems like a far off trajectory from where I started, but to me, it seems more like a natural evolution. Do you feel as though you missed your call with piracy? Sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes I look back and I think, um, you know, what, what if I had gone to Berkeley Law School? Like, what would I be doing now? I think the you wouldn't thing- be on the Team House podcast. That's what you wouldn't be doing. <laughs> you never know. You never know. I mean, I think that... Um, the one thing that is that I have not had a traditional career trajectory by any stretch of the imagination, whether it be for a CIA person, you know, a lot of people, the other people leave the CIA and they go into government contracting. That's kind of the natural progression. Or we've had people who we've increasingly, we've had former CIA officers go into politics. Um, <clears throat> My trajectory has not been uh, traditional, but I will say the one thing that I think has been consistent is that personally, like passion and purpose have always been uh, have always been core to me. And I don't think I'm unique in that way. I think that's very true of a lot of people who who join the CIA. You know, very few people or do join the clandestine service. You know, there are some who who you know, really think it's just going to be this exciting life of intrigue. But I would say that that most of the people I knew were were drawn to the career by a, a sense of, of patriotism, a sense of wanting to do something good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably why they've all left, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jameson Price, thank you very much. And let me make sure we don't have any more questions before we... I, I, I think that's all of them. Lindsay, this has been really fun, and uh, I always have a. It's always enjoyable whenever we talk. Uh, and I, I don't know. Is there anything we failed to cover that you want to bring up? That anything that uh, I failed to mention? I don't think so. No, this has been really fun. Yeah, we really uh, appreciate it. Um, we will uh, post. Guys, go to Amazon. Check out our book. Uh, you can pre-order the uh, audio book. Audio book. Audio book. Uh, yeah, and. Um, uh, and if you have Audible, you can get it as one of your free books. Next episode, 91, episode 91, next Friday, we're going to have Mike Perry on the show. He is a retired Special Forces officer. This guy's kind of a wild man. 
and kind of a, also a, a non-traditional career trajectory, I guess you could say. So we're excited to have him on the show. We'll be here next Friday, usual time with Mike. Um, and that's it, Lindsay. So we'll do the bonus segment, and uh, we'll close this thing out here. Thank you again so much. This has been awesome. Yeah, no, it's been really fun. I'm going to start to watch now. I'm going to, you know. You should. Circle. <laughs> you, you only have about 90, uh, 89 times. To catch up. Yeah. 270 hours worth mm-hmm. of programming. Mm-hmm. Tell your friends. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.